to the breakfast team for another fabulous brekkie show. Next up is Discovery, featuring Immortality. Well, we won't tell you how to be famous, rather the issues surrounding actually living forever. Well, why not? Also, we get all excited over electron microscopy in Antarctica. Welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Listen to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Uh, yeah. Hello and welcome to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. Well, we've got a bit of a special show today. We'll be looking a bit at immortality, and I'll be asking Ian Wolf why I can't live forever. We'll also be looking at electron microscopy for Australian Antarctic Division. We interview the lass in charge of all this. But first up, we've got the news. Millionaire Gregory Olsen will soon be the third space tourist to visit the International Space Station. Dr Olsen's original flight date was set for April, but health problems caused a delay. The flight has been rescheduled for October. Dr Olsen is also a scientist and hopes to conduct research on the voyage. New Scientist reports that China has rejected research on bird flu, published by Nature magazine last week. The paper used genetic analysis that the H5N1 bird flu, killing migratory birds at Qinghai Lake in northwest China, had come from southern China. China, the state, claims these birds came from outside the country. The head of the Ministry of Agriculture's Veterinary Bureau, Jia Luning, told the official news service that the paper made the wrong conclusion and lacks credibility, as birds do not fly on that route. However, it is known across the, ro- across the world as a well-known route. In addition, the Bureau stated that the lab did not have permission to go into the region and conduct the research. This is despite the fact that the data was collected before the government banned the study of dead birds or bird flu, or even to report the outbreak of animal disease without permission. One of the researchers, Mr Guan, has told reporters they're trying to close everyone's lab. New scientists suggest that China rejects scientific research it, com- it finds inconvenient. More news from New Scientist. Petrol, petrol station workers are more likely to have accidents than the general populace. These accidents also tend to happen when the workers are making their way home from work. The team at the National Taiwan University, Taipei, looked at the number and timing of road accidents of 20,000 workers. The workers that worked on the forecourt near the petrol bowsers near, had nearly 61% more accidents than the office workers. Not only this, but the timing was also telling. The accident rate for all workers on their way to work was statistically indifferent. But the accident rate for the workers making their way home, well, for every one office worker accident, there were almost two and a half forecourt worker accidents. The study also noted a massive reduction in accident rates after 1997, which was when mandatory vapour recovery systems were brought into Taipei. 
These systems suck petrol vapour back into the storage tank during refuelling. This cuts vapour release by 90%. New Zealanders will soon be paying the world's first carbon tax. Set to be levied in 2007, the tax is levied at New Zealand $15 for every tonne of carbon dioxide or equivalent emitted. It's expected that this will cost individual New Zealanders an additional $4 per week in this tax, levied on gas, electricity and petrol. Recently, Ian Wolfe was invited to be the philosopher on a panel discussion called Immortality, a Beginner's Guide, as part of Wilson de Silva's Science on Tap revival of the old science in the pub idea. Also on the panel were science writer Dr Elizabeth Finkel, author of a new book called Stem Cells Controversy on the Frontiers of Science, and Professor of Public Health Policy and Medicine Stephen Leader. So, Ian, the philosophy of immortality... I'd like to go against the tide and live forever. Why not, and who's going to stop me? My answer to the question of immortality is yes, please. Amongst the questions are how would we live longer, should we live longer, and what do we mean by immortality? Life is very short, and it's a dirty, dirty crime. In the ancient Roman Empire, the average citizen would expect to live around 20 to 25 years, and he wasn't legally an adult until his father died. By Shakespeare's day... 30 was terribly old. By 1900, people lived to about 40 or 50. Today, the average life expectancy is about 75 years, and we've only had scientific medicine for about 100 years, and it's slowly being applied in general practice. We now have a deep understanding of ageing at the cellular level. Free radicals are the smoke from our cells burning food for energy, and they cause damage that accumulates over time. We can make worms live several times longer by silencing certain genes we can increase by 40% the healthy lifespan of mice by restricting the calories they eat. Researchers have identified the certain gene that is activated when you live on a restricted diet, and they're testing a drug called resveratrol that will achieve the same effects of making DNA easier to maintain. Resveratrol is available in red grape skins, red wine, dark chocolate, blueberries, mulberries, peanuts, and 70 other plants. Resveratrol is used medically to fight heart disease, cancer, influenza, HIV and other illnesses. The life extension field is haunted by pessimists who are hung up on the Greek myth of Typhonius, who asked the gods for eternal life but was doomed to become decrepit because he forgot to specify eternal youth. I'd argue that one of the main goals of medicine is to help people live as healthy as possible for as long as possible, getting the impaired repaired. Woody Allen said, Some people want to achieve immortality through their works or through their descendants. I prefer to achieve immortality by not dying. The longest human life on record is the 122 years achieved by the cigarette-smoking Frenchwoman Jeanne Calment, who died in 1997. The upper limit on flesh has long thought to be the Hayflick limit. Hayflick shows that cells in the lab only divide about 50 times before they get sick and die. A recent study in London has shown that by age 18, the fuse on the time bomb of cell death is about 7,500 base pairs of chromosomes long and shortened at an average of 27 pairs per year. By back-of-the-envelope calculations, it means that if women in the study aren't killed by disease or misadventure, then they can live for another 277 years before the Hayflick limit stops their cells from replicating. In glass, we can reverse even this ageing of cells by extending the telomere fuse that burns down as cells age with an enzyme called telomerase. 
We don't know how to apply this to humans without causing cancer yet, but I think I can confidently say nobody has died of the hay flick limit yet. It seems that the curing of the diseases of old age is now more of an engineering problem than a scientific mystery. The Methuselah M Prize has been started by the same people who got private industry into space with the Ansuri X Prize. The M Prize goes to the people who get mice to live significantly longer in ways that can be applied to people. As the Jehovah's Witnesses said in 1918, millions now living may never die. American writer Ronald Bailey wrote about the emotional battle between the pessimists and the optimists. Future generations will look back at the beginning of the 21st century and marvel that intelligent people actually tried to stop biomedical progress just to protect their cramped and limited vision of human nature. It's not really enough just to live a long, happy, healthy life and then get assassinated or run over by a car. Eternal life means being able to recover from even those setbacks. Maybe by having an off-site backup of ourselves to be resurrected in emergencies. Let's look what's happening at the bleeding edge of possible technology. The Cryonics people with their slogan of freeze, wait, reanimate have been dismissed for years because they haven't successfully reanimated anyone. However, earlier this year, researchers discovered that hydrogen sulfide can put rats into suspended animation for short periods of time. And last week, they revived dogs frozen after several hours of clinical death with no ill effects. Freezing people might not work right now, but it looks like something a little like it might become available for surgery, the battlefield and space travel pretty soon. Drexler proposed that tiny robots a billionth of a metre across could be sent into our cells to repair damage and fight disease. We're now making the first of these tiny robots in nanomaterials and nanotechnology is an undergraduate course at UTS. Environmental groups have been protesting about the use of nanomaterials and cosmetics and the Green Party in Europe debated whether nanorobots were about to run amok and take over the world. When you can program matter down to the molecular level, you can achieve wondrous things, perhaps even survive a fatal accident or murder. If your mind were able to be recorded from your brain, and perhaps some of your skin cells kept on ice, then a future life assurance company could clone you a new body and then write your mind onto the brain. You might get your memories recorded once a month, just in case. Or if you're feeling adventurous, you could have your mind run in a virtual reality inside a computer where your every wish could be fulfilled. Or you could have a bet both ways and have your computer mind running a robot body. Science fiction writers Werner Vinge and Damien Broderick talk about the singularity or the spike, where scientific breakthroughs start happening faster and faster until they're increasing exponentially. At the spike, as soon as a human can think of doing something, the method and resources to do it become available. Should any of us survive this event, a very long and healthy life would seem a trivial thing to ask for. Maybe only some people will want to live for centuries, and some will be content to live to 122. There might be social pressures to call it a day at 295 when you reach the Hayflick limit, or let the kids have a go. Suicide could become an acceptable social choice, perhaps it will still be seen as being crazy. Imagine the world we could have if great geniuses like Leonardo da Vinci and Nikola Tesla were able to continue the work for centuries.
So before that track, we were listening to Ian Wolfe, and he was going to tell me why I can't live forever. Who's going to stop me, Ian? Well, there are lots of people that get really angry when you tell them you want to live forever. 
uh, the audience of the panel was split between the, the dyers, as I call them, um, and the people who thought that life is worth living. Um, a certain correspondent with ABC, Mr. Paul Willis, spoke about living longer was a selfish use of Earth's limited resources. So you're being selfish. You're using up all this food and resources that yeah, totally. some other people could have. And Isn't that what we're all doing by staying alive at all? And, you know, if you're living twice as long as the Romans did, aren't you already using modern technology uh-huh. to stay alive longer? Or you could choose um, not to have children yes. um, so that they didn't consume resources. People and got angry when you suggested that too for some strange reason. Wow. Yeah, but then you're selfish for not having children because you've got so much to give. That's true, that's true. Well, even the dyers, when we asked them, how long would you like to live then? What's the right age to die? And they thought about it and they came up with 85, which entertained me because that's 10 years longer than the current life expectancy in Australia. So they still want extra well, life than what they'd naturally get by our current technology. Right, so they want a little bit more, but not so much more as to be seen as greedy. That's exactly right. You don't want to use up all the resources. And, I mean, there's a little trick, because if you can survive just long enough to the next medical breakthrough, then that could give you just a bit more, and you could sort of leapfrog, and you sort of go up this little stairway to heaven to live just as long as you want. Yeah. Well, my grandfather, uh, both, in fact, both of my grandfathers who I've been down to visit recently, both are kind of frustrated by their bodies and their bodies falling apart. Right. Um, so I can imagine, you know, as you were saying before, the, the problem is not living forever. The problem is living well and living a long time in, a, in the sort of state that you enjoy living in. Which is what we, what we want, those of us who wish to live. Mm-hmm. Totally. Exactly. So what we need is science to advance at such a rate that I can be, um, you know, uh, eternally about this age because I can still, you know, do the snowboarding that I like, jump off cliffs without hurting myself and that sort of thing, which I've only got, you know, three or four more years of before <laughs> the, the body naturally <laughs> degrades as I That's throw so it around dangerously. Exactly. You know, you want to be healthy and active and doing what you want to do. You don't want to suddenly have all these diseases um, wearing you down. Mm. Mm. Well, I, uh, I'd like to vote for an obscene amount of research into keeping me alive for an obscene amount of time. problem is that ageing is no longer described as a disease because that's seen as offending the gods to describe it as a disease. It's natural. It's natural. It's all natural. And therefore, you can't get public funding for something that's not a disease. Ah, interesting. Yeah. But you could probably get private funding because surely there's... The M-Prize is privately funded, just like the N-Series X-Prize that got Mm. men into space privately. Yeah. Um, It could get those who wish to live, and I think the world might be weeded. You might get those who want to stay alive and those who don't. So what's this M-Prize? The M-Prize is the Methuselah Prize. The people who who basically said, look, if you get a man into space and return him safely, we'll give you a million dollars. They're telling the same people if you get mice to live twice as long or three times as long or whatever and we can apply that technique maybe to humans, then we'll give you a million dollars. And the prize is going up as they get more sponsors. Right, and a million dollars is is quite a small amount of money when you think of the fry that people could, you know, your billionaires out there could put to staying alive longer. For example, Rupert Murdoch wouldn't have to hand over his business to his somewhat (laughs) wayward sons. Kerry Packer wouldn't have to hand over his business to his clearly wayward sons. Um, I think there's a lot of people out there with a lot of money to spend on staying at the top of their game. This is some of the arguments of the people who want to stop you staying alive, is that they look, all the rich people and the dictators, 
would all want us, they'd get the technology first, all the rich old men, and you wouldn't get it till later. And so they'd be able to keep all the property and all the money and all the capital, and mm. the young people would never get a chance. And, and it's all terrible, so we mustn't do it. Um, but it also means, therefore, that we would have to die. And, and that's my problem with the argument. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, I think I'd rather die. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're a scientist working in Antarctica. You collect your samples and rush on to the warmth at home. Who do you give your samples to to analyse? Taylor Bildstein interviews Geraldine Nash. My name's Geraldine Nash and I run the Electron Microscopy Unit for the Australian Antarctic Division I manage it and its resources and I also train people and I troubleshoot um, new techniques uh, for their samples. So the scientist gets the information that he or she needs from their sample that they've collected in Antarctica. It's not necessarily a visual image they want. They just require information. So it may be just something I tell them, that this particular sample is full of viruses or it's full of bacteria or there are no diatoms present, something like that. Mm. Or often the scientists will just want to come along and say, is, it, uh, is this sample good enough to be used to get this answer about climate change mm. or to indicate this a particular change in a population? So I talk to them and we analyse the information together and then they go off and they might drive the microscopes and continue uh, gathering information from that sample. Does anybody else in Australia have a job like yours? Oh yes, there's a few of us around. Electron microscope um, units aren't very common, but they're mostly concentrated around uh, research centres of excellence in Australia. So in Tasmania, we're the only remaining set-up lab that has a transmission electron microscope and a scanning electron microscope and a lab built around them. What would you consider to be your greatest achievement? Um, oh, I guess the number of uh, scientists that enjoy doing electron microscopy in the Antarctic Division. At the Antarctic Division, that's my greatest achievement, I think, is just encouraging people and seeing them thrive in this science and doing well and getting fantastic results and being able to put their stuff on the international stage and waving the flag for Australia in the Antarctic Division. And what do you hate about your work? Well, it's very, very hands-on. You have to be very dexterous. And, of course, most of what you're doing is minute so it can be tedious in that you have to be so careful what you do. And often you have a sample that you can't just flip back to Antarctica and get it again. It's a one-off. It's only in that, that one place at one, one time, in that one year maybe. So you've got to be extremely careful and get the preparation right first time. So that can be a bit nerve-wracking nerve and also a bit tedious because you don't have any sort of leeway to go wrong with it. So that's one of the irritating things, I think, um, looking at Antarctic samples. They're all precious, and yet yeah, all, all have to be dealt with especially carefully to get the results we want. How has your work affected your lifestyle? <laughs> well, I don't go home and crochet at night or anything like that. I don't do any sort of minute uh, things at home. So I like to do big things like farming and riding horses and things that gets away from the minute eye of life, if you like. And going to sea, if I go to Antarctica on a marine science voyage, I'm often away for two or three months. Um, this happens maybe every three or four years or so, but that means you're not here for a summer with your family. So that can affect your life a wee bit, that you're not around for a long period of time. 
Has your passion for electron micrograph imaging ever presented you with personal conflicts? Um, I have personal conflicts in that um, perhaps we should share the results more than we can. So often I'm asked by uh, people to provide images for a program or to illustrate a certain point or authors wanting an image just to illustrate a book and we might have the perfect image but but I can't put those images out there as the work is not yet published by the Antarctic Division in, in, in uh, some cases. So I have a personal conflict with wanting to help perhaps another scientist outside this organisation but we can't um, share that information straight away until we've published it for Australia perhaps and it's um, for the Australian public to enjoy um, Australian science being out there on the international stage in a big way. Jerry Nash, thank you very much. That's okay, my pleasure. Thanks, Taylor. all from us in this edition of Discovery. If you'd like to contact us, and thousands do, you can reach us via email at discovery at 2ser.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Keir Smith and Taylor Bilstein. She's in Tasmania. Discovery has been produced by me, Marion Carruthers, in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Discovery is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm still Marion Carruthers. Why don't you join us for more science next week on Discovery.
I got up one down the road, down by the British Hall. So some activity, a drink to welcome me. Hey, hey. I was drinking every day. Did not want to 